Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and uh, today we have a really awesome episode for you. But before we get to the details of this episode, which I think you're going to find super helpful and fascinating, uh, we have some really exciting news to share with you about a brand new cohort that is starting through Western Seminary, which is our home. And um, so I want you to hear this quick message from Dan Kimball, my, my good friend Dan, who is the director of the Regeneration Project and on faculty at Western Seminary. Uh, I want you to take a listen to this quick message from Dan regarding a brand new cohort that is starting in the fall of 2020 anybody interested in pursuing a master of arts in uh, ministry leadership through western it's um it's an amazing opportunity so take a listen to this message hey my name is dan kimball and i am the director of the regeneration project and we have an exciting announcement to make from western seminary about a new master of arts in ministry leadership degree that is going to start in the fall of 2020 that is specifically designed for the Bay Area. Now, for many people in the Bay Area, you are working full-time jobs, you are serving full-time at a church, and the thought of getting a seminary degree is very difficult both with time and finances. So what we have done for this degree is we've actually eliminated some of the normal barriers that it takes to get a theological education. You will receive classes in person uh, in Bible and theology, hermeneutics, the entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament, a year of biblical theology, church history and apologetics. We'll be offering these classes, but the format is going to be a once a month delivery in a class, in a cohort model, with professors that are experts and scholars in their areas. So you'll come only once a month so to eliminate a lot of the commuting, and it'll meet from eight o'clock to five o'clock, once a month, all day. You'll then submit papers online uh, for grading and all of that. However, the other great thing that's happening is that it is going to be offered at less than 50% of the normal cost for a master's degree. That is not changing what you're going to be learning. We're also then offering the ministry classes that you will then be able to get and get elect, uh, credits for through serving in your local church. We can explain all of this. Uh, if you're interested in this, go to the website westernseminary.edu slash baycohort or email me dan at westernseminary.edu and we'll get in touch with you and we'll be able to tell you more about this. But in this, you'll have, think, I mean, if you think of this, if you're at all interested in seminary education, it's less than half the cost of a normal degree, but you're getting the full degree. You'll have to spend less time away from your family and church, in-person teaching from great scholars. You'll be doing this in a cohort model, learning with other people. So in that way, if you're at all interested, there's not too many excuses anymore to not take the step and pursue getting a degree. And in the Bay Area, theological training to me is more important than ever. So, westernseminary.edu slash Bay Cohort. Okay, now on to our episode for the day. Uh, as we are winding down 2019, um, we're full-fledged in the holiday season and the busyness and chaos of Christmas parties and um, gifts and shopping and all the rest. 
we thought it'd be fitting to have a conversation today with a really good friend of ours, John Mark Comer up in Portland, Oregon. John Mark is a pastor and teacher, communicator, speaker, writer. Uh, he's written several books and his most recent book is a book that I think many of you have already checked out. It's doing really well. Uh, a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And um, some of you know this, many of you are familiar with John Mark. Uh, he's been deeply influenced by the work of guys like Dallas Willard and uh, John Ortberg. And so he's borrowing this incredible phrase from Dallas Willard, um, the ruthless elimination of hurry. And I, I think it's just such a fitting conversation, uh, not just for the season of the year that we are in, but for the pace of life that so many of us find ourselves in. Uh, a pace that so often, I think, has the potential to rob us of the deep joy and peace uh, of, of truly following Jesus uh, in our everyday lives. And what John Mark is suggesting here is not that we get lazy. That's not the point. Um, but rather, John Mark is pointing to uh, the need for all of us to consider what it is we are busying ourselves with and if that stuff is actually meaningful and if it isn't, how to eliminate that stuff from our lives, the stuff that causes needless hurry and instead replace those things with the peace of Jesus and a pursuit, a deep pursuit of the things of God. And so um, this is an incredible conversation. It's an incredible book. Uh, I'm joined in this conversation actually by my good friend, Dan Kimball, who you heard from earlier. Uh, this is, um, I think it's going to be an incredibly helpful conversation for you. So uh, without further ado, here is our chat with our good friend, John Mark Comer. Hey, John Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be with you guys. And thanks for jumping in. Uh, Dan and I, obviously, super excited uh, to chat with you about the new book, which oh, is called mutual. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which that's an intense title, Ruthlessly mm. Eliminate Hurry. But there's a reason for that. So I wanted to start by asking you, uh, this is always a fascinating question to ask authors, where... Where did this book come from? This wasn't just an idea that you kind of spun up out of thin air, but it, it was born out of your life and experience. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, the title of the book is an, an adaptation of a quote from the philosopher Dallas Willard, who obviously philosopher from the University of Southern California, but as you guys know, teacher of the way of Jesus, writer, who I think at a writing perspective, you know, every pastor kind of has like, whatever theologian or thinker or person that they kind of idolize outside the New Testament. So you read a Tim Keller book and you can't make it more than two pages without the C.S. Lewis quote. Or for others, it would be Bonhoeffer, or for a lot of people, it's Luther. For me, uh, Willard has played that role at a lot of different levels and really, I think, given shape to my working theory of change, how it is that we grow and mature to become like Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. And um, it started for me kind of like, I guess the, the access point was when I came across the story between Willard and John Orper, whom you guys know, who's not far from you guys, 
when Ortberg was, this is a little interesting, was at the time on staff at Willow Creek Community Church, many, many years before the whole thing imploded, and was just getting sucked into the hurry and the busyness and the overload of church life. I don't know if it's church life or mega church life or just Western culture life. Called up Willard out in California and asked, you know, what do I need to do, basically? And Willard just said two very simple things. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life because hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And when I first heard that story from John, it was, uh, I kind of had two equal opposite reactions. At one level, my mind kind of thought it was a little ridiculous. Like, you know, like you guys, I'm in this super secular, super post-Christian context. And I don't know, like, if you were to ask me, what's the greatest challenge that you face following Jesus in Portland? I don't know what I would have said, but definitely not hurry. I don't think it would have even made it on my list, much less to the top. I would have said something about progressive theology or politics or the redefinition of, you know, whatever, critical gender theory. I don't know what I would have said, but not hurry. So part of me was like, that's ridiculous. Really, hurry's the main problem. But then another part of me, like at a, at a more gut level, it just like there was an instinctive yes, almost like, you know, I keep thinking of the metaphor of like a tuning fork, you know, where if you're familiar with that, you, you hit a metal tuning fork and it vibrates. You literally feel a, a vibration in your bone structure and its resonance with the reality of middle C or whatever it is. And like middle C is a mathematical reality. Like God created middle C, not Steinway. It's like woven into the fabric of the created order. And your your body like tremors with a resonance with it. And so I guess I kind of at an emotional instinctual level kind of felt like that for me. Like, oh, wow, maybe that maybe hurry is the issue underneath so many of the other issues in my life. So th that's kind of the, the access point, and then I'm happy to chat to it or not chat to it, but that came at a really key time in my life six, seven years ago when I was leading a very large church and was dealing with a number of kind of emotional and spiritual crises. Talk, talk a little bit more about that uh, in as much – you get into a little bit of the detail in the book actually in the beginning. Yeah. Um, talk – if you can, about the specifics of that season of your life that put you in that place or at least played a part. Yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot to it, so let me attempt at the short version and then ask for ask any clarifying questions you want. But at an emotional level, it was just kind of a, an early midlife. Basically, it was an early midlife crisis, but at an emotional level, it was just burnout. You know, we had we were nine or ten years at that point into church planting and the church had grown very large and I did Sabbath was not a part of my life I grew up in a very kind of I kind of came into ministry in a very workaholism for Jesus kind of church culture very low view for emotional health things like therapy were right up there with Satanism and secular music you know so um, there was just very little value and I say that not that maybe that sounds too cynical but that generally and it honestly was kind of like that and so um, I basically had an emotional crisis, burnout of just stress, anxiety, fatigue, hating what I was doing, all that kind of stuff. But it was much deeper than that because that could have been fixed with a good therapist, a sabbatical, and kind of a restructure of staff or something. There was a much deeper spiritual and even kind of ecclesiological crisis where, you know, um, I, my personal antidotal experience of following Jesus was kind of through high school, college, and early 20s, I felt like I was on this trajectory toward spiritual maturity. And, and that, that language is so overused 
what I mean by spiritual life, I guess I would define that as the capacity to receive and give love from God and to other people and from other people as well. And, you know, by that definition, basically of growing into a person of love with God, um, I felt like year over year I was moving forward. Like every year I felt like like I had moved forward or whatever the right language is in spiritual life and my capacity to receive love from God and give love back to him and to other people. And then, I don't know, maybe mid-20s, I felt like I just stalled out. As soon as the kind of church tradition I grew up in and the way that I was operating in my apprenticeship to Jesus, as soon as it began to hit the like really deeply ingrained habits of sin in my mind, in my body, in my neurobiology, generational sin, if like all that new research around epigenetics is true, like multi-generational stuff that's literally passed down in my genetic code that's out of line with Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom, as soon as it began to hit some of the motivation, some of these deep stuff, identity, insecurity, as soon as it began to hit this deep stuff, it was like all of a sudden the way that I was following Jesus was just ineffective at kind of moving through these obstacles toward, you know, union, what the ancient followers of Jesus would call, or whatever language you want to put it. And um, I say that not to slight the church tradition I grew up in. I'm deeply grateful that it raised me with kind of the trifecta of go to church and read the Bible and pray in the morning. I still, those three practices are very much a part of my rule of life. I can't imagine having them ever out of it. But at some level, that kind of go to church, read your Bible, pray, and try harder just wasn't, it was no longer doing deep work of change in me. And then once that then, so I felt like I stalled out. And then as the years went by and I got more and more emotionally unhealthy, burned out, exhausted from church, leadership, life, adulthood, parenting, responsibility, then the iPhone comes out, and now we have a whole new digital distraction thing. Basically, at that point, I felt like I actually began to regress. And year over year, you know, if your metrics for success are, I I just keep working with the very simple trifecta in the Gospel of John and Paul's writings of love and joy and peace, not as emotions, but as like inner qualities of the kind of people we become. Love defined not as tolerance or being chill or nice or desire, but as defined as agape, to will the good of another ahead of your own, even if it costs you something. Joy and and peace, being a non-anxious presence. Year over year, I was not only not becoming more loving and joyful and peaceful toward other people, if anything, I was becoming less loving, less joyful, and, and more stressed out. And so there was a deep spiritual crisis, and then this crisis got deeper when I realized I wasn't the only one, that my poor church was full of people like me, you know? It's that Scazzaro line, as the leaders go, so goes the church. And somehow, nobody ever said this to me. This was my, I think, misinterpretation. But somehow, I imbibed that what Jesus meant by take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, for me, meant like sacrifice your emotional health on the altar of church planting. And nobody ever said that to me, but somehow that's the message that got into my psyche and was really, I think it was demonic. It did such great damage, not only to me, but to the people in my sphere of leadership. So it was kind of a deeper spiritual crisis, realizing, oh, wow, our church is full of people like me who have stalled out 
in their growth and maturity toward a Matthew 5, 6, and 7 kind of life in the kingdom of God. And some of them are now regressing under distress, busyness, overload, digital distraction, Netflix, death of the Sabbath in American culture, all of that. So that was kind of this like early midlife crisis of me thinking, man, I can't go on like this emotionally, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not going forward spiritually, so something has got to give. Hmm. Yeah, you know, you just mentioned something that uh, leads me to another question, and it's really specific. It's a specific part of your book, and I've heard you you teach on it in a variety of different places. Uh, you mentioned Sabbath, and just a moment ago, you said the death of the Sabbath and Netflix right next to each yeah. other, <laughs> which is interesting because a Perfect. lot of people yeah. I know, a lot of followers of Jesus, um, not just young followers of Jesus, but of all ages and uh, of all backgrounds, often what they think is when they hear the word Sabbath, they think, wait, dude, Netflix is Sabbath, right? Like, I, you know, like <laughs> yes, that's my day my off. Day. It's my binge day. Yeah, yeah, that's my Sabbath, right? That when I do nothing and I just lounge around and um, am totally passive in the whole process. So talk a little bit about, I know this could be a whole other podcast episode or a series of episodes, but as you know, succinctly as you can, Talk about what the Bible means when it talks about Sabbath, and in particular, the idea that it's not a passive, leisurely sit back and do nothing, but rather yes. a, pr a very proactive engagement in something yep. that should be restorative and redemptive. Talk. So, yep. what is Sabbath? What is what is Sabbath not that many people think it is and and practice it as? And then, what actually is Sabbath biblically? And and then, you know, practically, how do, how does that work out in your life? Yeah, I mean, okay, there's so much there, so you need to cut me off and not let me just talk for hours about it. But yeah, I mean, I think the three most common misconceptions about what the Sabbath is from your average kind of American follower of Jesus, one is it's not just church on Sunday followed by shopping, brunch, get ahead on email for the week ahead, fold your laundry, watch Netflix, whatever you do on a kind of Sunday afternoon chill after church. Two, it's not the same thing as a day off. On a day off, most of us do a lot of work. You know, we just do the work we don't get paid for. We pay mm -hmm. the bills, we run errands, or we go shopping, or we consume entertainment. Or most of us, some combination of all three. I'm, on my day off, I have a day off, I tend to do all three of those things. You know what I mean? I'll, maybe I'll watch a movie, maybe I'll go out shopping, or you know, just running errands, grocery shopping, whatever. I'll do work around the house, I'll, anything I need to do, I'll sweep the back deck. I mean, whatever I have to do, that's a day off. And a day off's not a bad thing. And third, it's not, and this is kind of what I thought it was for most of my life until you know a number of years ago, it's not just some legalistic rule from the Old Testament for Jews that we're now free from in Christ. You know, that's the great tragedy and misconception, I think, of what it is. So what is it? Um, I mean, I, I like the framework. Um, I've done this before. You know, there are four different ways that you can translate the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is the word we translate Sabbath. And the four various translations into English are um, stop, rest, delight, and worship. Mm -hmm. And I like that as like just a biblical theology of what Sabbath is. So Sabbath is by definition a 24-hour time period where you stop, rest, delight, and worship. Stop, the word literally means like to stop or to cease. And so, of course, you stop working. Abraham Joshua Heschel says we stop even the thought of work, even thinking about working. 
in the in the Sabbath tradition, if you trace it all the way back to its Jewish roots, you stop wanting, like it's a whole day. So there's all sorts of laws. You see this show up in the book of Nehemiah around um, commerce on the Sabbath or consumerism around buying and selling and how all of that is basically off limits, which was really a part of our cultural architecture until the 60s and some states as late as the 90s with blue laws where you could not operate a business on Sunday. And there's a legalistic version of that that people react against, but the heart part, what that was attempting to get at was how do we take a day of the week and index our heart toward gratitude for what we have rather than inflame our desire for more with lust or greed or discontentment, you know? So it's a, it's a day for stopping, which is ironic. Like if you look at a Kinfolk magazine from Portland or whatever your lifestyle, Martha Stewart, Sunset, whatever your lifestyle magazine of choice is, and you look at most of the advertisements for lifestyle goods, almost all of them are images of Sabbath. They're almost all images of stopping. You see a couple, you know, upper upwardly mobile couple in a Manhattan loft just reading the paper in bed while drinking orange juice with their $300 throw blanket or whatever, you know? Or you see somebody playing the guitar on their couch while it's raining outside. Or you see somebody doing wine and cheese platter at the, pe- at the beach on a picnic blanket. And they're all attempts to sell you something, which is ironic because the marketing wings, they know that you don't have a life where you stop and you ache for a life of stop. You ache for a life of a Sabbath. And so they offer to sell it to you for a terry cloth bathrobe for $80 or whatever. <laughs> But the ironic thing is it doesn't you have to buy it doesn't cost any money to stop. You just have to stop, you know? So stop. Rest is more self-explanatory, rest of body, just with sleep, of mind, of spirit even. You know, in the Jewish tradition, you actually don't do any, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but you actually don't do any intercessory prayer on the Sabbath because that's not a bad form of prayer, but it's a form of prayer that feels like work, and you're working with God to remake the world. So on Sabbath, you actually you hold off from that, which is really interesting. So it's even like a spiritual Psalm 23 kind of coming to rest. Delight is, um, you know, spiritual discipline of celebration, basically, where you just attempt to curate a day where you fill it with beauty and goodness and good food and friends and family and gratitude and singing and celebration, where you just attempt to index your heart toward joy and then worship and that's the biggest thing to what you're saying jay um you know in in exodus the language is that it's a Sabbath, and really all through the, the, the hebrew bible the language is a sabbath to the lord your god meaning it's a whole day that is set aside for god and i got that in the church tradition i grew up in we didn't use the language of Sabbath. We used the language of the Lord's Day, and Sunday was the Lord's Day. You know what I mean? It wasn't the day to like catch up on Netflix or whatever. It was the Lord's Day. There wasn't the same paradigm for rest, I don't think, and for delight. And I'm just old enough that like the church era was like you went to church three times on Sunday if you're really serious. Dan, do you remember this? So yes, it was I do. <laughs> church, like worship service. Then it was Sunday school, and then you'd come back again at night Sunday for night, night church like a different sermon. I have no idea how these pastors preach two different sermons in one day. I, I can't even fathom doing that. But so it was, so there were, there was the category of like, this is a day that's dedicated to God. There wasn't the same category for this is like going to be the best day of the week and we're going to delight and eat and celebrate and rest. That wasn't there. We were exhausted by the end of the day, but at least there was a category for worship, but that's now just so disappeared as church has become like, I go every third Sunday for an hour and 20 minutes and then I'm out. You know, and then it just becomes a day off to watch Netflix, to do whatever. So I think recapturing this kind of the four kind of, you know, dimensions of stopping and resting and delighting and worshiping a whole day set aside just to curate that 
before God. It's like it's like a day long spiritual discipline, and it's it, that maybe sounds too dour. It's the best day of my week nine times out of ten, but just set before God. And in the war against hurry, it's like it's the secret weapon, you know, because hmm. it's a seventh of your life. That's like nothing to sneeze at. I have a question because John Mark and I have known each other for I've known you for thirty years. I think yeah. it was like thirty. So, 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 Something maybe, maybe more even than 30, No, it was longer than that because I wasn't on staff yet, and <laughs> yes. you were like five or something when I made. Yeah, first see, match. I lived in Santa Cruz. I think from uh, when I was six to when I was ten, so it would have been somewhere in there, nineteen eighty-six to nineteen ninety. Right. Yeah. I Let me just give the backstory because yeah. people are confused. They're like, "What?" Yes. John Mark's dad, <clears throat> Phil Comer, yeah. was the first person. He was a pastor in Santa Cruz. John Mark yeah. was really young. And he was the first person, right, who invited you, Dan mm-hmm. Kimball, to jump on staff at the church. I was volunteering for a couple of years. It was one day a week. John Mark's dad, Phil, was kind of mentoring me. Right. I was over your house a lot, <laughs> all of that kind of thing. And then you started and, with Phil one day a week, right? Yeah, then Phil asked me one day a week to come on staff leading the youth ministry at that time. Right. Yeah, I have a wow. picture of your dad next. On, it's up on my wall in my office. Oh, man, yeah. that's amazing. Yep. And you were a landscape architect, right, Dan? Yes, that's what I was doing, commuting over to San Jose from Santa Cruz and doing that. Yep. Then went up to Multnomah for one year, did the grad program because your dad did that. Oh, wow, yeah, wow. Yep. <laughs> so my earliest memories of you, Dan, I mean, again, I would have been six, seven, eight years old, was you, I just remember you as an artist, and I was obsessed with art, and you would come over to our house and you'd draw me pictures probably of airplanes or something. I don't really remember, <laughs> but I just remember I thought you were like the coolest thing to ever exist, and you were this <laughs> incredible artist who draw. I just remember I'd save your pictures for months and months and months and months. I, I don't have them anymore, so apparently <laughs> I wasn't that impressed or they weren't that good or something. Yeah. I don't know. but I still draw. Yeah, still yeah. doodle constantly. Deep roots, yeah. Yep. So I get one question. I guess the two was: say you're speaking to someone my age that is uh, been around, say, before phones and before digital yep. distractions, as you put it. It would you say that the difference? Because, like, say at Santa Cruz Bible Church back in those days, growing, thriving church grew from 400 to I was there from 400 to when it went over 3,000 for a while. That was pre-cell phone, pre-internet. Do you think that the primary difference between culture and living as, say, even a church leader back then versus today is digital access of what's changed? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a leading question or not. I think, yes, if I had to name one, I would say for sure. And, And that's where busyness has become ubiquitous not just for like the super type A lawyer partner at a law firm or mega church pastor, mm-hmm. but now the like 22 year old working part time and just like hanging out is busy too because of digital devices and entertainment. So I mean, just if you look at the stat, I don't know how all the math adds up, but like the average American is on Facebook products, Facebook or Instagram two hours a day. Mm-hmm. The average millennial, you know, is on their phone five and a half hours a day. And the average American watches four and a half hours of TV a day. So I, I don't, I don't, I literally read this one. You, you guys will find this funny as, as people, I'm sure you have millennials working on staff, but I read this like legit article that um, was surveying like millennials 
millennials in the workplace in like knowledge-based jobs and basically said that once you factor in text messaging, social media, YouTube clips, water cooler chats, like news alerts, that the average millennial only works two and a half hours a day, <laughs> right? So <laughs> it's insane. So I do think there's a – I mean just that is a massive – chunk of time. I mean, just a colossal chunk of time that has been swallowed up by entertainment, social media, text messaging, email alone, you know, mm -hmm. is just enormous. Um, so I do think, I do think there are other factors. I think, you know, we're the first adult generation that's the byproduct of widespread divorce. Mm -hmm. And my <laughs> opinion, though you don't hear much about this, is that it's having, and that connected to attachment theory is one of the main drivers between in the like basically emotional breakdown of our culture that shows up in everything from you know into outrage culture to politics to I think actually behind a lot of it is this is what happens when Woodstock becomes the norm when the progressive sex ethic infiltrates left and right and now you have a whole generation that grew up you know from broken homes and all the emotional fallout from that and and then you add to that transience where few, less and less people stay in one place over a lifetime and people move and then you add to that the growing gap between you know the disappearance of the middle class which is still around but more and more the church is either poor or rich because people are either poor or upper middle class so I think these things actually really money is a big thing like money is a driver for hurry you know so this is a much more acute problem for middle class and up so I, I think the loss of kind of familial emotional architecture and, and stable rhythms of life and then the digital age and then money, these things have just all, I think, conspired into kind of this perfect storm, you know? Mm -hmm. But yes, it's a long way of saying I agree. I think the internet and the phone are the primary culprit. Yeah, I say that because I think in my life, uh, being older, pre, you know, being in ministry and everything pre pre-digital and post, I'd say that's my greatest struggle is uh, the constant wow. bombardment of wanting to be leading, wanting to be accomplishing things and having access to information and texting with Jay or whatever it is constantly. That's why I do think what's really helpful, what you wrote about was breaking into those very tangible things about like setting times for email. You have keep your phone off until after your morning quiet time parent your phone, put it to bed before you make and sleep in it, and these type of things, because yeah. you don't say technology is bad, you're just indicating don't let it rule, master you uh, instead. Yes. And I think I just, I'm parent of two teenagers now, and mm. it's just seeing that, like thinking when I was a teenager versus they're a teenager, it's so different. It's radically and so different. much of it, I think with hurry and thinking, I'm not saying technology is evil, because it's very good, right? But I think you are emphasizing mastering that technology, not letting it master you. I, as an older person, that's what I think is a core change from mm. when I was your age till now. Or, um, yeah, that makes time. sense. And it's a struggle I, that I have for sure. We, we all do because it's that constant, constant. Yeah, thing. and the level of access that people have to each other and to you, you, yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer. I mean, so so basically, in the book, I make the pitch that you know the solution of the problem of hurry, which I I simply define as just too much to do is not more time, it's to slow down and simplify around what really matters. And, you know, the historic 
Christian solution to that problem is what you know has been called a rule of life. So I make a case, you know, a little bit for rule of life. I'm actually teaching on this right now. So I've just given four teachings on a rule of life, and I'm I I'm a, my strong conviction is that in the digital age, all of us basically have to come up with a digital rule of life. So Andy Crouch, if you read his little TechWise family, mm-hmm. he literally just does it as rules. He has 12 rules for his phone. That's where that one you mentioned, parent your phone. I think I stole that language from him. You know, And that's just for those of you listening, that's like a good parent, at least if your kids are younger, um, you know, your kids go to bed before you go to bed and they get up after you get up. That's just like parenting 101 if your kid's under teenage years or whatever. And in the same way, to parent your phone means your phone sleeps in a different room than you with the lights off and the door closed, and it goes to bed before you go to bed and it gets up. So my personal rule of life, which is this is different for me because I, I have a knowledge job that requires you know time of study. My phone goes to bed at 8.30 most nights, put away in another room, plugged in a charger, out of sight, out of mind, and I'm not allowed to touch it till 9.30 the following day after I've got up, spent time with God, gotten my kids off to school and done a couple hours of deep work, working on my sermon or whatever. Most people that would be too late, but for my job, that's really helpful, you know, because the phone is more of a hindrance to my job than it is an aid at many times. I need long, uninterrupted hours to, to pray and to think and to study and to read and to write. So I think some kind, whatever it is for each person, coming up with a digital rule of life, our whole church is doing this actually right now. That's our practice for the next week or two is everybody's coming up with their own digital rule of life, which is going to be totally different based on, do you have 18-year-old kids or three-year-old kids? Do you have, you know, what's your stage of life? What's What does your job require of you? What level of access and digital access do they require of you, you know? But what I keep telling people is you already have a rule of life. The question is not do you have one, it's do you know what it is? And is it deforming you or forming you? And is it moving you toward your deepest desires in the kingdom of God or away from them, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think some kind of a digital rule of life, whatever it is, is essential for just basic emotional health, much less, you know, discipleship to Jesus. What I would say for the the person that's listening to this is that I always want to look at when someone writes about hurry, the spiritual discipline, slowing down, I always want to look at what is their life like? Uh, you know, some of them are, you know, uh, maybe they don't have families or it was a long time ago. What I think your book is adding extremely important out there is that you're a dad, you're a follower of Jesus, you're a husband, you have young family, you're living in a uh, in a city, and you are not a person that you're, you're accomplishing, God's accomplishing a lot of things through you, right? So you're not someone that's like at a um, uh, naturally going to be slow. You have to set these disciplines in place and take it seriously. So that's why I think your book is very important because it is speaking to the reality of today's life, but not somebody yeah. that's living in a cave somewhere that isn't dealing with the, the average things that most people do, especially yeah. those that are aggressive in wanting to use their life and steward it well in this world and not just kind of passive and very slow normally. Yes. So that's why I think anybody out there should read this that is... Um, a normal average person accomplishing, wanting to accomplish and use their life well and time well, and you're dealing with it in a very practical, real way. So I think that makes your book different than a lot of others. Oh, thanks, Dan. That's really kind. And, you know, I mean, and some people need to hear the opposite message. Like, you know, the Sabbath command is really interesting. 
because it's for six days you shall work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So there's an interesting like dual command there. It's actually a command to work as much as it is a command to rest, you know? And it's assuming that you'll need the command to rest more than the command to work. But, I, you know, we all know people or, ha- or our people have been people who actually need the opposite encouragement. Like, stop playing Call of Duty and watching Netflix four hours a day and cancel your Instagram, you know, account and go do something generative and meaningful with your life, you know. So some people really need – and that's the funny thing about the digital age is this made everybody busy. Hmm. So, you know what I mean? Like it used to just be the crazy type A high driver. Who was – I forget the name of the journalist but did that article, How Millennials – for BuzzFeed a year ago maybe, two years ago, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Hmm. And she just makes the point that burnout used to be for like the – you know, Wall Street day trader, you know, working 100 hours a week or the emergency room physician. And even for them, burnout was like a place they would visit and then come back from. But now it's kind of for everybody and it's where we actually live and call home. Like we just live from burnout and exhaustion and digital distractions, like just the new normal, you know, for all sorts of people, whether it's because you're a partner at a law law firm or you're just like living in your mom's basement playing Call of Duty all the time. Like everybody is just so much over busyness and with that fatigue and anxiety, you know. So some people I do think need to hear that, that message. But I think most people I talk to have the opposite. Like if I slow down, you know, my life won't – I won't be as accomplished. I'll lose my job. I won't get ahead, you know, whatever. And and part of me wants to say there's truth in that and that's just part of the like take up your cross. Like that's part of the self-denial thing, which I think – in our day and age, for upwardly mobile people, often looks like denial of kudos or ego or accolades or career promotion or whatever. But honestly, my experience has been kind of the opposite, that the more I've slowed down and unhurried and brought like simplicity and focus to my life, I actually feel like I'm more productive than I ever before. Like It's not like I'm sitting around, like I'm doing things, you know? But um, I've just like really channeled energy into getting off my phone, you know, really prioritizing just a couple of things and trying to do them really deeply and well. And that's worked enormously well for me, you know, just as far as I don't actually feel less. I work less hours right now than I ever have in my entire life. And part of that's my stage of life. My kids are at ages where I just can't work the hours that I used to. I have to be really present as a dad. They're you know, um, 10, 10 and 14. So, or I'm sorry, 10, 11 and 14. So like, I just, I'm in full on dad mode right now for another five, eight years. It's like just a lot, you know, every day. So I can't go work 90 hours right now. And I work less hours than ever before. And I still feel like pretty generative. I feel like I'm doing things, you know, that, so I, I think there's a myth that more work equals more generativity, and I just I I don't think that's true. And all the studies say that after 55 hours a week of work, your productivity plummets. So there's there's virtually if you just measure productivity between somebody who works 55 hours and somebody who works 90, there's virtually no difference. But there's a massive difference as far as their emotional health and their capacity for love. Yeah, you you mentioned that um, article that cites that research earlier about millennials. Kind of funny and alarming at the same time about millennials. If you <laughs> the take two and a half hours. Yeah, the two and a half hours, right? And it, I, I think that that's super enlightening in terms of what yeah. you're saying. Um, and even this conversation is really helping me grasp sort of a bigger picture of, of the, the point you're trying to make, I think, in the book 
um, that busyness and hurry, I mean, it's sort of a badge of honor people wear these days, right? I mean, it's, it's shocking if you ask someone how they're doing. It's shocking if they don't say something along the lines of, oh, I'm good, but man, so much going on. So everybody says it. Right. And across ethnicity, across gender, across class, urban, suburban, I hear that everywhere I go. Right, right. But the the point is, what are you busy with, right? If Wish. you're actually producing two and a half hours of work, certainly you're busy for 12 hours a day, but the, the nine and a half or 10 and a half hours are actually more so what is that? on your phone. And, on, and it's not all just, I'm in my mom's basement playing Call of Duty, although that's some, and, and there certainly needs to be a wake-up call there. But sometimes it's just like the heavy pursuit of satisfying that urge of FOMO in us or the voyeurism yeah, totally. of social media. And and that's what I run into. I know hard. I mean, in my city, it's just too expensive to live if you're in that kind of more hang out in mom's basement kind of world. It's mostly just people that are on their phone all the time or yeah. shopping or just distracted, you know? Right. Yeah, totally. Man, this, uh, John Mark, this book is um, so necessary, particularly for all, for all ages, but particularly for younger generations. So I just want to say on behalf of, of um, church leaders, I think, who are trying oh, to faithfully so serve, yeah. uh, particularly new generations. Thanks for creating it and writing it. Um, tell people where they can go. To, this is not your first book you've written. I mean, this is what's so fascinating. You're eliminating hurry in your life, but you produce a lot of stuff for your church <laughs> and for the church at large. Yeah. You've a bunch of books and you speak all over the place and your teachings at Bridgetown and elsewhere are available online. Where can people go to find more of your work and um, access some of that stuff. Um, most of my teaching is just through the Bridgetown Church podcast. And uh, then I have a little podcast I do with my buddy Mark Sayers called This Cultural Moment, where we talk about kind of post Christian culture. And other than that, um, johnmarkcomer.com sounds pretentious to say, but all the <laughs> links to Instagram and stuff like that there, my books and all that kind of stuff is there. Pretty easy to find. Cool. Awesome. John Mark, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, it's such a joy to chat to you guys. I wish we had a couple hours more to start throwing questions your way. 